From the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. Well, good day, everyone. I'm pleased to have with me here today um, my friend and colleague, Dr. Dan Guy, and we're going to talk about closed-loop supply chains. I'll give Dan a little uh, shameless plug here. We have two of the top 50 operations research professors in the world at Penn State. Um, one is uh, our colleague and department chair, Dr. Kevin Linderman, and the other one is the gentleman that we're talking with today, Dr. Dan Guy. So real world expert talking about his research, uh, one of his areas of research that he's well known for, which is closed loop supply chain. So thanks for joining me today, Dan, welcome. Uh, thanks, Steve. So really quick background on this. I was just talking about this earlier. 30 years ago, I'm a doctoral student. I'm sitting in my apartment in Athens, Georgia, and I get a phone call from a Navy Lieutenant Commander who's a project officer for an engine remanu- the jet turbine engine remanufacturing processes out in California that said, what would it take to get you out here to look at the problem? I understand you're interested in large-scale scheduling problems. And my response was a plane ticket, money for food and transportation once I get there, and I'm open to using the public bus system if I need to. It it turned out to be great. You know, I I had open access, got hooked on the problems in remanufacturing product recovery, what turned into closed-loop supply chains, because nothing in the academic literature addressed these problems and issues. I leveraged that into more commercial applications with, with, with firms that weren't in the DOD sector, but certainly that was kind of the genesis of my getting interested in this stuff to begin with. So it's been, it's been kind of a fun ride over the last 30 years. Yeah, and, and I know we're going to talk a little bit today about what a closed-loop supply chain is, Dan, but you want to give like a 30,000-foot overview of what that really means? Yeah, we're looking at, at supply chains, but everybody knows the forward supply chain, right? You, you, you mine the minerals, you make the parts, you make the components, you assemble everything, you sell the product, and normally that would be it, right? You're done. People would dispose of it and buy more. We, we decrease the time between the buy and dispose cycle as fast as we can, seems to be our present business model. But what if I decided not to do that? And I said, maybe I want to capture my products at the end of their use cycle, bring them back, recover as much value as I could, and then put them back into the market in a different form, okay? Whether it's as parts for a newly manufactured unit, the same components made a remanufactured unit for the same market. If that doesn't work, maybe we can recycle materials, but we're trying, we're not not talking about this from a true industrial ecology, closed system where energy's encompassed, everything else. We're talking about a simpler logistics type and supply chain type of issue of let's not waste materials. And the, the labor, and the energy that's embodied in those materials, because a lot of stuff gets disposed of that's, that's really not done. We run into an interesting problem with, with making things that last a lot longer than people use them. Well, let's start off with um, sort of your basic concept of sustainability. How do you define the problem? Well, you know, this is kind of interesting. Everybody, you know, when you're an academic, everybody in your family asks you what you do, and you're trying to explain it in a way that doesn't get you involved in, in either a big argument at the dinner table because of your political views or technical enough to where people glaze over and that's the end of the subject. So really what I want to do and and what I've kind of settled in on over the last couple of decades has been to say to people, look, I want to develop industrial systems that are economically 
and environmentally sustainability. So we're, we're not looking at this as being a sustainability with a capital S true believers type of problem. I'm looking at this from very, very, very tightly focused business problem. People have to make money to keep their businesses going, okay? And, and at the end of the day, if I don't make a profit, I'm not going to be in business. And I think that's one of the things that often is a drawback to the way that people approach these problems, particularly in a business school. Look, business schools are about making money. We can't go to companies and say, hey, Steve, I got this great idea for procurement. You want to, You can pay 15% more for this product, but we're going to save the earth. And your response is going to be, no. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'm going to pass on this today. Uh, maybe I'll take a hit tomorrow. Yeah. And, it's not credible. It makes us look a little bit foolish. So you basically are going down the path of designing systems that are both economically and environmentally sustainable. Yeah, I mean, you can have systems that are certainly economically sustainable, but, and, and if you look in central Pennsylvania, the logging operations in the 1800s that stripped the entire uh, old growth hemlock forest here down to the ground. There was nothing left. That's an economically model that, that was sustainable for the time being. Environmentally, it stripped out everything. Okay, uh, You had to wait until more trees grew in. So if you look at modern forestry practices, they do selective harvesting so they don't have a 50-year gap between, <laughs> yeah, we harvested all that. We're done now. We'll wait for the new trees to grow in. It's like, yeah, let's, let's look at this from a more realistic standpoint. How realistic, Dan, is it to be truly environmentally sustainable and economically sustainable? I can name you a couple of companies that are really just have done a brilliant job of this. If I, I look at my picture book company, it was at Xerox. I was fortunate enough to, to be allowed to run the hallways at Xerox for five years. And, you know, everybody talked about these closed systems that they built. And they don't want to sell printers, printing machines, or or uh, monochrome printers. They want to sell printing services. And extremely successful at selling printing services. Hey, if you want to talk about the company that really kind of pioneered this without being aware of it, IBM, back in the days of mainframes. The, the first company to produce uh, computers commercially for sale was Sperry Univac. And... Sperry Univac was known for not being able to meet due dates, but more importantly, you bought the computer. And that was it. And IBM kind of came late to the game, but IBM said, well, you know, look, this is the 1950s. How many computer engineering programs are there? How many software engineering programs are there? How many systems development programs are there? Where are you going to get these people? Ah, we're IBM. Tell you what, we'll provide an entire drop-in solution for you. You get the computer, you get programmers, you get systems developers, you get maintenance people, one-stop shopping, right? They're a very early example of, of building a system that was basically, they were integrated, completely vertically integrated, which made it so easy for them to go in and do that. IBM products were never technically the best. So but in procurement, you know, we talk about sourcing for capability as opposed to sourcing for product. And I guess that's what you're talking about, right? You're buying a capability from a provider. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what was so brilliant about this early uh, IBM strategy was they saw that there was an enormous growing market for computing services, but there wasn't the development in the people to run these systems yeah. internally. Nobody had those strategic capabilities. 
IBM did. I could sell you computing services, not hardware, not software, but, but computing services and capabilities. Tell me what you need to do. And we'll figure out a way to help you automate this or to get the software in place and to have all these things. And it really is, you're right, it's, it's strategic outsourcing. Yeah. And as it relates to a, a procurement professional, how does the people part come in, right? So I'm, I'm buying something from somebody else, right? Where does the people aspect come into that? Well, one of the things that, that I think we have to make sure of is that when we're outsourcing, we need to be mindful of where these companies are doing business. You know, I, I think that we're past the point where we want to have somebody come back later and say, hey, Steve, you know, we outsourced with your company, but we found out you were using child slave labor in Brazil in a, a gated facility where they lock the kids in at night. We, we can probably do better. You know, I've seen a lot of companies that say, we're going to base our standards on the most stringent labor standards available. And all of our partners have to ensure that their company follows those standards. You know, I heard some interesting stories from, in particular, the, the Alcala folks who told me, one of, their, one of the directors told me, he said, when I got a phone call that there was a problem with labor somewhere around the world, I got on a plane and I went there to see what was going on because that should have never happened with the processes that we had in place. So we, we should have become aware of this, that, that uh, you know, organized labor in the last century for decent treatment, which has become kind of the standard here in America is that we don't, you know, we, we don't see people committing suicide because they can't make production rates in a company that they're locked into. And, and, and we don't see people being, you know, no breaks, uh, you know, no concern about, are you really 18 years old and, and eligible to work full time? Are you 12 and, and being forced to quit school to support your family? Um, yeah. That's something that we should, our company should have evolved into, right? That, that's good corporate social responsibility to be a good steward. So, you know, you always talk about the, uh, the three R's. So let's go through them one at a time and kind of give your, your picture of, again, I, I try to craft this in terms of procurement. You know, how does reduce relate to sustainability and, and procurement particularly? So, you know, one of the first things that comes up is we want to get a benefit, use less of something. Sounds strange, but really, one of the most telling stories of the adoption of the Clean Air and Water Act, which was a big deal, companies didn't want to do this. One company came out and told their process engineers, hey, you know what? We really want you to redesign our processes to where there are no byproducts that we have to worry about disposing of. 3M. 3M came up with the Pollution Prevention Pays Program. And, and their real goal was, we don't want these byproducts. So no, we don't want it at all. If pollution doesn't occur, we don't have to worry about it. Another no-brainer is, you know, you talk to people at, I'll use Xerox as my exemplar again, their director of environmental health and safety, Patty Calkins, told me one time, I can't get my hands around carbon reduction. She said, but I can get my hands around energy reduction. So she said, I've got two programs. One tells my process engineers lower energy to make the product here, lower draw on the grid. I tell my design engineers, design me a product that will use less energy at my client site. It'll draw less energy on the grid and it'll save money for my customer. So, you know, when you're procuring components, you wanna make sure that these components are, are energy effective, are efficient. 
mm-hmm. without damaging their their performance. And it becomes interesting because you can you can pass along these kind of design considerations to your partners that you're procuring from, letting them know that this is one of your key metrics. So uh, you've touched on all the key ones that you uh, that you talked about there. What about reuse? So reuse is really around the idea of look, we make a lot of these these units, particularly at Xerox where they've adopted a modular product design. They've designed this product to be durable and reparable and reliable, which means that it's going to be reusable for another use cycle, given the way they've designed it. So I'd like to provide a process that in in Xerox, they have a crew that goes in and deinstalls the unit, packages it properly, sends it back to a warehousing location where it's been pulled into production uh, to make new units because they'll tear it down and put it back together again, material costs get really lowered with something like this. There are tons of products that enter into um, many areas that people turn in before they're used up. So you've got business opportunities here that come up as a result of this also. We're gonna talk about the idea of servicizing here in a, in a little bit, but what about the third one? What about the recycled one? You know, seems like oh. know, as a kid growing up and and I don't know, maybe it's less exciting now, but. Everybody talked about recycling, whether it was plastic or paper or, you know, whatever. Is that what we're talking about? We're talking about something else. Well, yeah, we are talking about materials recycling, which has gotten, for some items, it's gotten a lot harder. Everybody's fine with aluminum. Everybody's fine with steel. Paper's good. Where we really run into a product is plastics. And, And part of the problem is the U.S. primary market for plastics was China and India. Their economies were so hot that they couldn't get raw polymers in, virgin polymers in, to use in their manufacturing processes. So they were willing to take our recyclables, which typically aren't sorted well and they're mixed together and they're dirty. They were willing to buy them, sort them by hand, and then use them as inputs into an economic engine that was just running out of raw materials. COVID comes along and kind of dumps a big bucket of cold water on that booming economy end result, they don't want our, our, our plastics anymore. So we've got a real problem with plastics recycling. We've got a real problem with the way that we design products. Uh, bonded substrates don't recycle well. It sounds good, but in many cases, we're sorting goods that will later be transferred to a facility where they'll sit. Yeah. If there's no in demand for it, it's very difficult to use these. I, I, I always ask my undergraduate students, you know, rank these in, in raw order without showing them this graph metric. And inevitably they'll put recycling at the top because that's what they've heard all the time, right? Sure. Um, and, and the truth is it's not a very, except for a few isolated industries, it's not a very attractive response. That's why you got a number three on the list. Yeah, I look at this as almost being a sucker bet. Nobody's going to want your recycled materials because they're contaminated. And you don't know how those contaminated goods are going to affect the performance of, the, of your product. If I'm Apple and you want to offer me recycled polymer that'll be used to make Gorilla Glass later, and it's going to give me a 2% purity difference, how's that going to affect the end customer's use? Yeah. If that, that's a negative experience, they don't care that you recycled. They blame Apple for making a bad product. Yeah. I, I know in my own experience in, in the business I was in, and I'll, I'll give you two examples, in, in packaging, we knew that you could use up to about 40% recycled materials in a package and it would still maintain its integrity all the way through the system. So, but 40% is way better than zero, right? Yeah. And in the product itself, you know, um, 
Nylon triple six is easily recyclable. recyclable. Yeah. It doesn't lose any of its structural components. You can regrind it and remelt it and use it a million times. Polyester, uh, not so much. And cotton, you know, so we had to be very careful about the percentages, but we tried to use as high a percentage as we could to maintain product integrity. And you're right though, in terms of cost, recycled polyester and recycled cotton are a heck of a lot cheaper than virgin cotton and virgin polyester. So there was a cost benefit there too. And as long as you provided a good quality product to the customer, they were happy because they got to take credit for sustainability and we got to save money and give them a product that met their needs. So it was a pretty good idea. So let's talk specifically then about how all this flows in a closed loop supply chain. So we're going to start off here with, as you call it, a forward supply chain, right? This is the way we typically think of things, right? Yeah. Usually it boils down to you bought the product, the customer's got the product, then they're going to, when they're done with it, they're going to dispose of it. What's interesting is that my parents were depression era kids. Yeah, and, mine too. And yeah. when I was going to my parents' house after they passed away, I found a Bell telephone. This was in 2010, by the way. I find a Bell telephone, rotary dial telephone, stashed away. And the only reason my parents moved away from using it was because they tried to get into a service that was only touchdown and it turned into a big problem. So they converted the touchdown, but only very angrily. So I was curious, wow, does this still work? Plug it into the wall. I made a phone call out and I'm like, wow. So I, I got curious and I came back and I started looking at the, the specs on this. Bell Telephone designed these phones and manufactured them to be used for 40 years in service. And if you take the, if you take the cover off, it's point-to-point -point wiring. It has a mechanical bell and clapper for the ringer. And, and anybody with even remote thoughts about how things work could probably fix it if it were broken, okay? And, and then I look at the, the smartphone in my pocket, which is wildly beyond any computing power that was available, right? But I tell people, hey, throw it out every two years. 40 years for simple technology, two years for complex technology. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of crazy. So, so talk about how we close this loop, right? How do you, how do you create a closed loop supply chain? So let me give you the easiest case to manage. And that's that I'm Xerox and I decide I don't want to sell printers anymore. I want to sell the document. Okay. So the only thing okay. Xerox would say their corporate slogan was the only thing we leave with the customer is the document. So I stop selling my equipment and I lease it. Okay. Say I use a standard financial four-year lease. We won't get into the, the accounting mess value. You know, I've got a paper about this with one of my former doctoral students who worked for Schlumberger. It's a mess from that perspective, but so I decided to lease. We, we can wave a magic wand and make it easy and we'll do it right. And at the end of four years, Xerox comes and removes that equipment. If I want to renew my lease, fine, but they're going to put new equipment in because of reliability and serviceability concerns. It's high-tech imaging equipment. This is not happier that you're going to have in your office. This is high-end imaging stuff. So, so that's um, the product collection box here that we're looking at, right? Well, yeah. We're going to actually go in and, and deinstall it. Okay. Bring it back to my facility tear it down into the components because I've used a modular design philosophy with it. I'm gonna check the components and make sure they operate fine. I'm then gonna put them on the line and use them to make a newly manufactured unit. What kind of percentages are we talking about here, Dan? On a, a Xerox, you know, photo printer copier, I mean, uh, if you rain. take the original product, how much of it actually gets reused in a new, in a new build? In some cases, up to 90%. Really? Depends on how, you know, on one product line, so Xerox knew more about this than anybody. They had a product line called the DocuTech that started out as a monochrome printing line back when copying was still photomechanical, all right? They broke it up into an input 
a copier engine and a paper and a, and a paper collator on the other end because they were getting ready to go digital. So they then take that frame and they pull that photomechanical module out and replace it with a digital one. Then they go to black and white with what they called a splash of color. So if you wanted to use this machine to print up bills and highlight your customers, what, here's what you pay this month in red or yellow, you could do that easily. So I've extended the capabilities again. They took this basic printer line that, that if, if you looked at it being on the floor, it, it looked like it could withstand a pretty close hit from a nuclear weapon. <laughs> and they used it for 20 years. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. They were retiring the DocuTech when I was there and, and the engineers still kind of would look at it and kind of smile and say, it, it's a workhorse. You can take four reams of paper, drop it into the paper loading uh, bin from 10 feet above and then kick the paper bin shut with a booted foot and have it, have it still not miss a beat on running, okay? Robust design, designed to be upgraded, designed to be reused and, and really, you know, engineered to the point for the customer, it was a, a fantastic experience because it never broke down. You know, it just, they kept on making it a little bit more of a value-added proposition for their customer. Plus the fact they kind of got their customers who got to rely on that little bit of color to think about, oh, maybe I'll invest in a full color digital printing press as a transition from monochrome to color operations. It gave them an upgradable pathway for people but this was a, the, the platform for the color for the full color was a disjoint platform. But even that platform, as high tech as it was, was was very interesting in the way that they planned upgrades and maximum reuse of the components within that system. If Xerox was an early adopter in this concept of a closed loop supply chain, how long ago are we talking about? Like how how far back does this go? Eighties. 1980. Okay, so it's probably going to be 50 years here soon. And the military has been doing it longer than that. Okay, the the military drove modular design for for complex units like jet engines back in the 1960s. You can't train a kid on the draft to be a jet engine mechanic when it's a part based build fast enough to make them useful. Yeah, but I can train you how to test a module, find the offending module, pull it, put a fresh one in, and strap that engine back onto a jet, and the jet's operational at that point. So. You can maintain sortie generation. It lowers the skill level of the end user or the end maintainer. Can you talk a little bit about where this concept falls apart? Yeah, a couple of things. We, we had that ideal world where we leased. The minute you sell your product, you have to be worried about something. So if I'm going to be relying on a closed loop supply chain, my primary input are the used products that are out in the field. So first, I'm limited to however many products I sold in the previous period as the upper limit that I can remanufacture. But remember, if I'm not leasing these, there will be some lower amount below that maximum, that actual sale level that I can recollect. People destroy them, they don't wanna get rid of them, they don't wanna give them back. And, and it's interesting, OEMs are not the dominant player in this game, it's third-party remanufacturers. Okay. So they're good. The procurement process for remanufacturing, if you're, if you're a third-party player, you don't own the material, so you couldn't lease it to begin with. You didn't make it. But you're now going to go find a way to procure. But I can't procure on quality, quantity, or timing. So I have to make some really good decisions about when do I acquire the material? What grades do I buy if I'm going to nominally grade the quality of what's available out in the field? How much do I pay for that? A lot of this stuff is electronics. So 
it's like a perishable product. There are tons of pitfalls that can happen. And, and it's, it's really kind of, it's not surprising to me that third-party players are, are better because they're stealthy, but because they don't have that OEM downfall of that's my product. Yeah. They don't get it. You know, they don't own it anymore. Yeah. Telling people, oh, give that back to me. Be a good person. You know, Verizon, oh, you can give us your cell phone and we'll, we'll recycle it for you. They're actually selling it to a third-party remanufacturer. And, and I'm kind of like, well, hey, you're making money off me, but you're not sharing any of the money with me. No, I'm not giving you my cell phone back. Yeah. So yeah. the procurement problem becomes a big issue. And, and trust me, this has been several PhD students' dissertations and, <laughs> and, and life's work is to understand this better because it is a lot more complex than people think it is. And it's, it's crucial. You don't understand it, you won't make money. Right. Now, it can also fall apart from a technical possibility, right? When Xerox started outsourcing components, I remember one of their one of their things that they showed me was one of their big monster monochrome printers. They've got a fuser module that they decided to outsource to a company who did it very well. Now, fusers have to put about a ton of pressure on that paper and ink to permanently adhere it. It has to be heated to a certain temperature and then tons of pressure. They're brass rollers with a, a rubber type coating on there. That module is, is about $30,000. And Xerox got back, tore it down and said, ha, we need to remanufacture the, the fuser. And then they looked at it and went, yeah, the people who built this for us built it as what I would refer to as overly modularized. In other words, it took Xerox over a year to figure out how to remanufacture that fuser. The vendor had intentionally made the part very, very difficult to remanufacture because they didn't want to miss the, the subsequent sales. Sure. So you can have people play technological tricks with you, or you can simply use stuff that isn't going to be, I mean, you look at a circuit card or a, an integrated chip, there's nothing you can do with that. It's done. It's yeah. committed. It's finished. So some stuff in the way it's currently built, you just you just can't reprocess it. It's not feasible yeah, or cost-effective. The example that I think everybody's familiar with that they've got kids are juice boxes. The, the juice box or pouch, it's paper, plastic, and aluminum all fused together. And as people, friends of mine told me in the recycling industry, they said, you know, if you intentionally set out to design something that defied any form of recycling, <laughs> that was it. Now, what about even if I can do it, even if I can get it back, and even if I can reprocess it, what is the market perception of remanufactured products? And I know you have a good example here. <laughs> it, it can vary greatly. My, my, my PhD student who did some phenomenal work on this with Meg Malloy over in marketing came up with what we used to scientifically call the ick factor, right? So we had an example that we found because he came back to me at one point and said, show me an ad from Amazon for refurbished electronic Sonicare toothbrushes. And... The, the title of the talk was, does anybody want to buy a remanufactured toothbrush? And there's always an engineer in the, in the group who's raised their hand. I, I'll take that. I'm functionally oriented. And, and we would come by with a, we, we got one of the heads. And we'd be like, why are you comfortable with that? And he'd point to the head and go, well, that's a new head. We're like, are you sure? Maybe they just washed it out with some hot water, let it dry and sealed it in a plastic bag and shoved the whole thing back in there and said, here. And at that point, people start to kind of go, no, 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 I don't want it. It's going to be in my mouth. And no, you know, and the other example I think that everybody can understand is in a college town, we have vintage clothing stores, right? Um, yeah, sure. In fact, we even have places like Goodwill. They also sell clothing. Oddly enough, none of them sell vintage underwear. <laughs> no bloomers are available. <laughs> 
not going to happen. Don't want yeah. that on me. So even sometimes, even sometimes if you can get it back and even sometimes if you can reprocess it, sometimes there's no market case for it, right? There's no business case. Yeah, I mean, when we looked at consumer products, the one that would make the most sense and don't even think about it, personal care products. Yeah, sure. Electric shavers, electric toothbrushes, even hair dryers and curling irons, no. All right, well, we got a, a couple of minutes left on a couple more topics I want to hit on. Can you talk about, which, you know, to me, I always thought was a relatively new concept. I've, I found out recently from talking to you that it's not as new as I thought it was, but the idea of service sizing. Yeah, service sizing has been around forever when you think about it, because something like a taxi is a perfect example of service sizing transportation. You're in an area that you don't live, or maybe you do live, like New York. In New York, it's much simpler to take cabs than it is to own a car. There's service sizing transportation. And when you think about it, and you and I are both old enough to remember this, checker cabs. Sure. Okay. Checker cabs that were designed to run a million miles and then keep on going because taxi companies had mechanics. They bought checker cabs that were easy to rebuild and service and maintain and have this whole network. That's really servicizing to me is you're extending product life and you're, you're using it much longer. The current model for taxis is buy a, a relatively inexpensive, durable car, beat it to death and then sell it. What's left of it at the end of its useful life. But Aside from oil and gas and tires, I don't really worry much about it anymore. So the old checker cab model is dead. So service sizing can also include being concerned with reusing that product and extending the useful life of the product. Interfaces carpet, um, which we use here at Penn State. They sell carpet squares. It's the 6-6 nylon yeah. that they simply strip the backing off of, throw the, the nylon into a big melting area it's a, grinder. It's, a, it's a toe grinder i've i've seen them in person yeah they've serviced carpeting because for industrial uses you're really just concerned about having something for people to walk on and you'd like to be able to replace high traffic areas without having to replace low traffic areas with roll carpet that's not possible with carpet squares it is so it makes a lot yeah. of sense in industrial settings ed anderson the guy that developed that um was just really he made the announcement that he was going to go to servicizing carpeting and everybody in his family kind of pounded their head on the desk going, what's gotten into him? We're going to go out of business. And, and when he passed away, they, they'd gotten the, the kinks worked out on this to a huge extent. The other two that I think are greater um, procurement opportunities. So shared savings. If you're going to handle things like paint and solvents, let's say you're, you're, you're GM or Ford. Look, I make cars. I, I don't really understand paint or, or how to manage paint. So it might make sense for you to go to DuPont and say, I'd like for you guys to manage my painting operations. I'll just give you this portion of my plant and I want certain quality characteristics. But if you can figure out how to use less paint or to use that paint more effectively, I'd be willing to share the savings with you on rolling forward. This also becomes really powerful in things like chemical and chemical and solvent use, because if, for example, one of the reasons it becomes useful to go to DuPont and ask them to run your painting operations is DuPont has to manage the solvents that are used to clean up from the paint. Well, DuPont's a chemical company. They know how to deal with that. If I'm Caterpillar and I need to clean these big, greasy diesel engines when they come back from field use to remanufacture, I don't want to be bothered with, with worrying about solvent management. I'd like to say to any chemical company, manage my degreasing and cleaning operations, and you're responsible for managing the stocks of chemicals, making sure it's there, making sure it's disposed of properly, 
and, and furthermore, let's use less so we don't have to worry about all these disposal and, and end of life problems and, and we'll share the contracts savings along the way. So there's lots of stuff that's available for that, but only in an environment where it's easy to, to gauge each other's efforts. So it comes back to this concept of sourcing for capabilities as opposed to buying things. Absolutely. I think that's, that's one of the things that got lost in this rush toward low-cost procurement was they're looking at just buying a part instead of buying capability. You're not getting what you could get out of your vendors if, if you worked with them. So, uh, Dan, do you have any, if, uh, you know, the, the, the participants in our class this semester, as they always are, you know, a number of them may actually go into procurement as a profession. Do you have any advice for them in terms of how they should approach sustainability when they go out into the uh, either the government or, you know, industrial marketplace? Like, what can they expect? What are they going to see? And how can they bring value to their firm when they get there? You know, they're going to see increased pressure to provide products that, that have a clean bill, right? So if I'm looking at being in the government sector, more and more assets being deployed by the military are going to be battery powered. Well, we got that, that problem potential with mica being used in the batteries. Most of the mica for battery production comes from Madagascar, from mines that are mainly staffed with kids. You're going to have to be able to say one way or the other where that mica came from because the government wants to know that they're not promoting child labor or slave labor somewhere. Um, you know, we're looking at being able to say, I want a product that doesn't have a negative environmental footprint. So part of what they need to do is think about the the potential risks and then manage those. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that's really powerful is to belong to some organization, whether it's something like our supply chain center for research here, that serves as kind of a of a a resource for them to come back and see what current what what state of the art practice is. I think belonging to a professional society and having a a presence there where you can exchange ideas and see what people are doing in different industries because you know different industries progress at different rates and yeah. i think the power of these professional organizations first of all is networking but second it's, it's an open exchange between practitioners about what they're doing that you can yeah. you can kind of adopt or share best practices uh these become really important forums for prof developing professionally and being a, a, a real contributor to your firm I, you know, in COVID-19, I apologize that we're not doing this in person, but I really appreciate you taking the effort and time today to, to make this very thoughtful conversation about sustainability and procurement. And I look forward to, uh, to doing it again in the future. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR. <laughs>